Thursday, everybody, um, and welcome to Osteobites. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I'm mom to Osteoangel Dylan and the Director of Scientific Programs for MIB Agents. And today on Osteobites, we're talking with Dr. Brooke Bernhardt from Baylor College of Medicine, who will be discussing high-dose methotrexate therapy for osteosarcoma and the use of a predictive tool for methotrexate clearance, mtxpk.org. And thank you to Vicki, our Junior Advisor Board VP, who is our panelist today. And we are very thrilled to have Dr. Bernhardt with us today. She is the Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics, Section of Pediatric Hematology Oncology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and the Director of Pharmacy for Global Hope, Hematology Oncology Pediatric Excellence. Her research interests include improving pharmacy practice globally, with a focus in Sub-Saharan Africa, ethical and practical strategies for managing and mitigating medication shortages, health disparities in pediatric oncology, and the role of pharmacogenomics in pediatric oncology. And she has a particular interest in anti-metabolite disposition and the impact of host-related factors on toxicity and clinical outcomes. Um, so, so great to have you here today with us, Dr. Bernhardt. And before we get started, I have a few events that I wanted to share with you all. Um, factor registration is now open. Um, you can check out the registration link. We'll put it in the chat. It's June 23rd to 25th in San Diego. It's at the beautiful and serene Rancho Bernardo Inn. And you can find the schedule, speaker list, and all the things factor on our website. Warrior HQ is a wonderful place for Osteo Warriors to connect and hang out, and it is open and free to patients and their siblings under 18. Won't lie, Factor is addicting. Once you attend, you will always come back. It is that good. Um, it's one of the rare things about osteosarcoma that is life-changing, but in a good way. Um, and then also for any clinicians joining us today, MIB Agents hosts a bi-monthly virtual tumor board for osteosarcoma called Turbo. The next one is Wednesday, May 11th at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And if you would like to be added to the calendar invite, or if you have a case that you would like to submit, um, please let us know. We'll also put a link in the chat where you can um, get in touch with us and get more info. I would also like to thank the sponsor of this episode, BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals. BTG provides rescue medicines typically used in emergency rooms and intensive care units to treat patients for whom there are limited treatment options. They're dedicated to delivering quality medicines that make a real difference to patients and their families through the development, manufacture, and commercialization of pharmaceutical products. Their current portfolio of antidotes counteracts certain snake venoms and the toxicity associated with some heart and cancer medications. Their drug Varaxase is for high-dose methotrexate toxicity, which is what we're gonna be talking about today. Um, and I would like to now hand it over to Vicki if you wanna introduce yourself. And I think you also have an announcement. Yeah, so hi everyone. My name is Vicki and I am an Osteo Warrior diagnosed this past July. I am currently in hospital right now receiving high dose methotrexate. So I thought it was a very appropriate time to be on this podcast. Um, outside of osteosarcoma, I'm taking a gap year off of school and will be attending Villanova in the fall. And a quick announcement about OSTO. Uh, we're excited to announce uh, the April 28th debut of MIB's newest podcast, OSTO. That's with a capital T-A, where Osteo Warriors in treatment and recent survivors build a T on osteosarcoma from the adolescent and young adult patient perspective. Listen in on our honest and personal conversations about our osteo experiences, stories, and who knows what else. Find us on the MIB channel on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks so much, Vicki. You're a um, super trooper for joining us today and um, talk about like getting an amazing perspective, right? Um, so um, with that, we'll hand it over to Dr. Bernhardt and you can go ahead and start your slides if you'd like. I'll do that. I'm sorry, I had them up for a minute and then I decided to take them down. Let's see if I can get them back up again. Yeah, no, no worries. There we go. Okay. All right. Well, thanks uh, everybody for joining. There's some familiar uh, names on the line and I'm really excited to see all of you and talk about something that obviously I think is very important, which is methotrexate. I think we all agree on the importance of the drug and um, I'm happy to pause from time to time for questions. Um, as we go along, we can stop, put them in the chat and again, they'll be moderated. 
um, by Christina and Vicki. So without further ado, first again, thanks again for BTG for sponsoring this. Um, I do wanna just, you know, as a point of disclosure, as I mentioned to um, our hosts that fortunately or gratefully, uh, BTG has also sponsored some research I've been part of. So I just kinda wanna mention that as well. And it's all related to this tool, mtxpk.org. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of background and talk about the tool at the end. All right, here we go. All right, so our discussion today is gonna to be brief. I really would like for this to be an active discussion. Um, I'll start with a little bit of introduction. Thank you so much for uh, the, I guess the scientific and, and great you know, personal professional introduction you gave. I also wanna spend a little bit of time demystifying methotrexate. Methotrexate is a therapeutic modality. I think you all are familiar with it, but I'm just gonna you know, talk about that a little bit in review and then talk about the end user tools to monitor methotrexate clearance. Um, so without further ado, this is me. So I actually grew up in Dalton, Georgia, which used to be known as the carpet capital of the world. But if you read the New York Times, it's now, I guess, considered the soccer capital of the world. So uh, take a look at that. It's a fantastic article featuring my high school and it's the phenomenal uh, soccer legacy that's been built there, football, depending on what part of the, the world you're from. Um, I went to the University of Georgia, which also had a great banner year winning the NCAA football championship and went to uh, pharmacy school there. And I sometimes call myself an accidental pharmacist. I tell my students that I went to went to Georgia thinking, I just want to, I don't know what I want to do. I want to learn something and help people. And yeah, I see some go dogs in the chat. Okay. <laughs> but I... Um, I had some I had some great friends and some great mentors that kind of steered me to pharmacy school as a way to learn about pharmacology and pharmacotherapy. And I always knew that the science of pharmacology was what was interesting to me. So I've never been your typical pharmacist that does the lick, stick, peel, and dispense from your retail corner drugstore. And I have a lot of respect for those folks, but I've always been someone who's a little bit more interested in sort of the academic perspective of things. Um, here's me doing a, a few fun different things and you know, working in investigational pharmacy and the inpatient ward at Texas Children's Hospital. And now uh, my primary clinical responsibility is with our um, partners in our Texas Children's program in Sub-Saharan Africa, Uganda, Malawi, and Botswana. And one of the uh, most challenging things we have there is, in fact, our inability to deliver high-dose methotrexate. And so we're constantly struggling with um, how we can improve access to essential medications such as methotrexate in other parts of the world where we don't have things like IV fluids or IV pumps or routine access to antiemetics. And I know I see another familiar face here who works with me in PSYOP from Essential Medicines. And so something we can definitely continue to talk about. So uh, without further ado, let's continue to move on. I have a little bit of a love story with methotrexate and I wanna talk about how it began. So I mentioned to you that I called myself a little bit of an accidental pharmacist. I actually was interested in pharmacology and pharmacotherapy in part because I had some friends who were diagnosed with cancer when I was a child and I also, um, had a, my grandmother was impacted by rheumatoid arthritis. And I learned when I was young about the very limited um, list of medications that you could use in the 60s and 70s to treat RA. And of course, methotrexate was one of them. And so even before I got into pharmacy school, it was one of the few drugs that I had learned about sort of on my own. And I always thought it was fascinating and interesting because of the way that it um, really interferes with the folate cycle and all the different things it does to impact DNA and RNA. And so methotrexate has been something that I just always felt was an interesting enigma that had so many benefits and of course, so many risks and toxicities. And even when you go back to the beginning of time, the beginning of time, the beginning of treatment of cancer, at least in the modern era to the 1940s, this is how we learned how to treat kids with cancer, period looking at things like aminopterin and then amethopterin, which was later named methotrexate. And so if you look at the history of the treatment of cancer period in children, methotrexate has a longstanding history as one of you know, the most backbone agents that you can imagine. And so I, I joke with my students because I had a, a group who worked in my dry lab a few summers ago and they all kind of sat around and they were doing different projects. They each had their own assignment. And we were sitting down having a lab team meeting and they said, you know, you've got this thing with methotrexate, like all of our projects are somehow linked to it. What's the deal? And I kind of told them, I said, you know, this drug is essential to kids with leukemia, 
to kids with osteosarcoma. It's essential to people with rheumatoid arthritis. It is so important, but yet it's got, we still don't know much about it. it. Every patient tolerates it differently. Some kids have a ton of nausea and vomiting. Some have none. Some have neurotoxicity, some have none. And so this, to me, it's always been this interesting phenomenon of why is it that some patients have toxicities and some don't? And that's been something I've studied you know, over many years and continue to study today. And I also like to tell them, I don't know if you can see this picture or not. Yeah, maybe. You can't beat a classic. Now, thinking about back to those, those early days of methotrexate, and maybe this is a little bit more, <laughs> a little few decades later, I think about like how there's just some things that are oldies and goodies. And this is a drug that again, has been around since the forties, but it's here to stay. A lot of things come and go, but this is a drug we continue to need to learn about because it's not going anywhere, at least in my opinion. <laughs> so we think back about classic osteosarcoma. Now I mentioned in the forties, we started using aminopterin and the precursor to methotrexate in 1947, 1948, wasn't really until about the 1970s, about the time you saw that Oldsmobile Cutlass that came out on the last slide, wasn't really until about the 1970s that methotrexate really sort of made its mark in the treatment of osteosarcoma. And these are some of the first publications looking at the role of high-dose methotrexate with leucovorin, also known as citroborin rescue, in the treatment of children of, of osteogenic sarcoma, or also known as osteosarcoma. And if you read some of these, which you know, I had to request a paper copy of this from the library when I first found these articles, it's interesting the way they determined it. Now, today, if we had a drug that we wanted to study in osteosarcoma, we would have to do preclinical testing, multiple animal models, we would have to show you know, that it's safe and effective and the toxicities and whatnot. But then in the 70s, what they actually did is they said, well, we used this drug and it, and it worked in adults with lung cancer and breast cancer. So we're just kind of like adjusted the dose and used it in kids with osteosarcoma. Now I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, right? But things were different. And this is why, you know, since the 70s, there's been a lot of regulation passed to help protect children and to advance the way that we study and treat cancers in, in children and other disease states. But back in the beginning, we didn't have any options. There were no options to treat pediatric osteosarcoma. And then some bold investigators got together and they said, let's look at high dose methotrexate. And they started with lower doses, 100 milligrams per kilo. You can kind of see here in this old typewriter font, 200 migs per kilo, and they escalated it up. Now, you may be thinking, well, 12 grams per meter squared, how does that correlate with a mix per kilo, right? And there's some conversion factors that we use, but essentially, if you, if you take 12 and, you know, you divide it by 30 and then, you know, 12,000 you know, 12, divided by 30 and you figure out the mix per kilo, you realize they started at a much lower dose than what we give now. And they escalated it and they compared six hour infusions to 24 hour infusions. And eventually, after many, many years, of iterations came up with the 12 gram per meter squared that we use now. So again, we've had a, we've come a long way, but we really haven't, you know, that's been the past 50 years and we're still using that same drug. We're just tweaking it ever so little bit here and there. And so when I say it's an oldie and a goodie and it's not going anywhere, I think you can believe that now, right? <laughs> but since the 1970s, it's not like we just proved that it worked and then we, you know, moved on to the next drug or the next improvement. We actually had to, as a, as a community, continue to, to prove that it worked because there were a lot of people that said, well, you, you didn't initially study it against a placebo. There was no randomized controlled trial. You didn't study it against some other drug. You just started using it and that was it. And so some investigators said, well, what if we study different levels of methotrexate. Do patients who get a higher level in their blood at a certain time have a better response? And so you can see here, it, this, is, this is not everything. These are just a, some of the selected articles that there was a lot of interest in looking at the peak. So does the peak predict, and the peak is the, in, the methotrexate level at the end of the infusion. So in a lot of these studies, it was a, a six hour infusion and then you draw a blood level and you see what that level is. 
Now, you know, now most of our studies use a four hour infusion. So there were some discrepancies there, but you would take a level at hour six and eventually investigators found first, if your level is over 700 versus under, you're more likely to have a response. Other investigators said, you know what? We did that same study. We found a thousand was actually the point at which survival changes. And then some other people did a study and they said, you know, and some kids, they need eight grams, some need 10, some need 12, some need 12 and a half. I don't know what the difference is there, but just because of the difference in renal function in a young child versus a teen versus a young adult. And then some people said, you know what? We're continuing to push this dose upward and we're seeing more toxicities. And now we're seeing a decrease in survival because of increased toxicities. So there's all this debate going on for 50 years over one drug trying to figure out the best way to dose it. And so I bring us forward to 2008, which, and you know, I remember when I first started practicing at Texas Children's, we were giving high dose methotrexate and we were using it, but I had learned that a lot of places weren't doing it. There were a lot of centers who didn't give high dose methotrexate because they felt that the most effective drugs were adriamycin and cisplatin, doxorubicin and cisplatin, and that methotrexate didn't add much. And now I'll say that there were some studies, again, in that 50-year gap that said maybe methotrexate is or isn't important. It was, there was a lot of muddy data. But finally, some of the, you know, the early investigators from the 70s came together and said, listen, enough. This drug works. We should all use it. You should use it safely. You know, Time for final acceptance. Like in my head, I'm thinking the minion mic drop, right? <laughs> and so I finally, in 2008, this paper came out and I think it's kind of quieted people down a little bit, although there's still quite a lot of people who don't, who don't kind of look favorably upon methotrexate due to the toxicities and prefer really to stick with Atria Platinum. Okay, I'll pause there for a second before I get into some more sciencey stuff. I don't know, Christina, if y'all have anything you wanna talk about up to this point or Vicki, or if you want me to keep going. Vicki, do you have any questions so far? Um, so that's so interesting, actually, just what you said about some places only giving Doxo and Cisplatin, because I thought MAP had been, uh, like, I guess, when has MAP been the standard since? Um... I mean, at, at least for the past 15 or so years, okay. 10 to 15 years. And I think in most places, even before that, it was the standard in, in the late 90s and 2000s. There was, you know, some question as to whether it should, so there was a, a huge meta-analysis that was done and it showed that three drugs are better than two, but four drugs are not better than three. And at the time, the drug that had the best data for the third was methotrexate. And so I think most people, given the history of, of how long we've been using this drug, we've all just kind of decided like, this is where we are. This is our standard of care. But it wasn't until this article in 2008 where it was really like, this is. I think this sealed the deal. I mean, I know there's a couple other people on this call that have some historical perspective as well. I, I My center was always using MAP, but I know that there were a few that were not using MAP. And I don't know if this, if this was the convincing <laughs> argument or if there was um, anything else that sort of swayed opinions on that. I'm also curious then, was, is there any data on, um, on, on outcomes for using just doxorubicin and cisplatin versus using the, the three combo? Yeah, there was a study that looked at that and I don't, not, actually there've been studies that have used doxo and cisplatin. There've been studies that have used like bleomycin and mitomycin and a bunch of other drugs. And I actually don't remember all the data on that. Cause you know, again, I got this thing with methotrexate. <laughs> yeah. so, I've kind of always been in the methotrexate camp, but I do know there were some studies that looked at those. And I just, unfortunately, I'm just not as familiar with that data because it's never really been, you know, sort of our practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I will say though, you know, thinking about globally, because of the lack of high-dose methotrexate, we do alternate, um, at least, you know, in our centers, um, doxorubicin, doxorubicin, cisplatin, so AP with cyclophosphamide atopicide. And again, that's just because of those are the drug, other drugs that have been studied and in historically, although the, you know, the, the best data is really more with methotrexate, so. Right. Okay, great. Thank you.
Okay. All right, so I don't want to bore you too much with science details. I mean, I'll talk a little bit about it. And I just love this image. Um, and this was, um, I encourage you to look up, you know, this article in The Oncologist. I re refer to it quite a few times here. Um, but this is just the mechanism of action of methotrexate. And this is not comprehensive, but it's a cute little graphic. So hopefully it'll help. But basically you have methotrexate up here in the top left and these little purple dots. And methotrexate has... Um, a membrane carrier that helps transport the drug into the cell. When it's in the cell, that's when it gets activated. And in that act, more activated form is how it actually works. So it inhibits different enzymes. And those are those sort of orangey, you know, I don't know, washcloth looking things. <laughs> and it inhibits these enzymes, which then helps cause the drug to in interfere with the folate cycle. So it basically decreases naturally occurring folates in your body that are involved in the creation of DNA, okay, and other, other types of proteins. And so by doing this, your cells eventually die, okay? And this is not really specific, you know, there's certain cells that may or may not be more specific due to the different carriers that bring the drug into your cell, or the or in some patients, and sometimes we can, you know, kick methotrexate out of the cell, depending on what types of transporters we have. And all of this is related to your genetics. In some cases, there are certain genes that regulate these carriers. So RFC or those carriers to cause more methotrexate to come in. And in some cases, it causes it to come out. And in some cases, it causes it to come in and stay in forever. And sometimes you might have genetics that cause you to have different rates of, of different enzyme expression or activity. So everybody's body is a little bit different. And I'm, it's, it's crazy because there's, this is a, a simplistic drawing and there's some more complicated ones out there that show it's not just these enzymes and these carriers, but there's just dozens of, of others. And in each case, your body may be different than someone else's. Your genetics may say that you have a certain way to impact bringing that drug into the cell, but then you're, the way you, you metabolize it or break it down is different. And that can vary from one patient to the next. And that's what really influences your methotrexate levels, your experience with toxicities, your experience with efficacy. All of that is related to your genetic. Well, at least not all of it. A lot of it is related to your genetics. And so this is really what to me is the most interesting thing is that for so long, we've studied one single issue. Oh, what is the, you know, this one genetic change in this one enzyme? And is that the way that, that methotrexate gets to be more effective? And what we're finding is it's going to be a combination of all of these. And we're, that's where we're trying to get is what is that combination that helps increase, you know, efficacy, but also minimizes the unnecessary toxicities. Okay. Let me move on a little bit. So in order to optimize or to make sure your methotrexate is most effective, we do therapeutic drug monitoring. And that's what I talked about a few slides ago with the drug levels of over 700, over 1,000, et cetera. So some of the things we look at are your methotrexate levels. Some places will still do a peak, so at the end of the infusion. And then usually you'll also get something at hour 24, maybe at hour 42, hour 48, hour 72, and so on. Some places may do 12, levels every 12 hours. And, you know, the one thing I like to kind of mention to people is that, it, you know, think about why is it that we do methotrexate levels? So if you're getting cisplatin and doxorubicin, are we measuring cisplatin levels or doxorubicin levels? We're really not, right? And so, but why? And it's interesting to think about, right? If you have a chemo drug, why is one different than the other? And in, in pharmacy speak, we call this, you know, the therapeutic window or the therapeutic index. And so we know that a drug like methotrexate has a certain toxicity range outside of that certain window. So we like to measure levels, not just to see how well the drug is working, but also to prevent those toxicities. We wanna keep you within a certain range. 
you may know sometimes patients who are on warfarin. If you ever have heard of the drug warfarin or whatever, it's for blood clots. And patients who are on that have to have a certain diet. They have to have, you know, certain blood levels that are monitored. It's just like someone who's on insulin, someone who has diabetes, and they have, we have to measure their blood sugar very closely because of their medicines for diabetes. Methotrexate is another one of those drugs that we, we like to do therapeutic drug monitoring to keep you in a certain range for efficacy and toxicity. And so if you've ever received or seen someone receive methotrexate, you know that we do a lot of stuff. It's complicated. You're getting a ton of IV fluids. I see Vicki nodding her head. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> IV fluids are intense <laughs> with sodium bicarb usually, or sodium acetate or something to get your urine more alkaline. And sometimes when we don't have all these IV fluids or electrolytes that we need, you have to take it orally. Sometimes we start it when you're at home. Sometimes it's in the hospital. A lot of that depends on what's available, what your, your hospital, how your hospital practices. It also depends on, you know, the way your body is functioning, your genetics, your organ function, other medications you're on. Sometimes you have to hold them. Sometimes you don't. And then, you know, how your levels are changing. And this is where the kind of the rubber meets the road, if you will, where we talk about mtxpk.org. And that is when we give a patient methotrexate, we hope and expect they clear based on our thresholds. And we're like hoping that that's gonna happen. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And we don't always know why. And maybe it's just because you drank a two liter of Coke and you did turn off your IV fluids and your urine pH changed, who knows, right? Or you took some over-the-counter, you know, a leave and that interfered with the clearance. And so there's a lot of reasons that that can change. And fortunately now, we didn't always have it, we do have an agent that can help rescue patients with severe toxicity, blue carpet ACE, um, but we didn't always have that. And so I think it's really important to kind of know when it's appropriate to use that drug. Um, we, you know, you may say, well, <laughs> just give it to everybody, right? It makes sense. Glucarpidase is a rescue agent. It breaks down methotrexate, helps get it out of the kidneys. Well, we don't, we've never studied it like that. We don't know that it would be safe to give to every patient. It's a recombinant enzyme. You know, when we first studied it, there was all these concerns about, well, a patient's going to have an anaphylactic reaction to the glucarpidase. If we give it, we have to monitor them. We have to look for antibodies. Uh, it's expensive. You know, it's not cheap, but it takes a lot to study something used in a, in a rare disease like this. So there's a lot of reasons to not use it for everybody. And then there's a lot of people who are concerned that if you give glucarpidase and you, and you get rid of methotrexate too soon, you might be decreasing the efficacy of the drug. So we don't really know, you know, we spent decades trying to figure out the right glucovorin dose, decades. I don't even know if we really all agree that we're doing it right now. And so it might take a little bit of time to determine if even glucarpidase should be given routinely for certain patients as well. Okay. So oh, Dr. just a yeah. question back. So can you just go back and so you were saying how, like, why, why is it we don't monitor other chemos like doxorubicin or cisplatin? Yeah. Like, do they that, not have that therapeutic window or? Yeah, that's a great question. So you actually have to have a, one of the, one of the important things about monitoring drug levels is that you have to be able to take a sample, usually of blood and send it to the lab. And that number has to mean something, right? And so you have to be able to take a sample that correlates with some toxicity efficacy endpoint. A lot of drugs, when you give the drug are either rapidly broken down, taken in by other tissues, converted in the liver. And so you can't always measure all of those different uh, breakdown, the different byproducts or, or metabolites as easily. Um, or you just can't physically do it. Like I think cyclophosphamide is a good example of one. You give a dose of cyclophosphamide and, or melphalan even, these drugs used in BMT, you give a dose, say you take a serum blood sample, you got to get that on ice immediately and down to the lab, immediately process it because you, otherwise you're going to have all these breakdown byproducts that don't mean anything. 
you know? So a lot of times we don't know, right? The other thing to kind of keep in mind is that that dose has to correlate with a certain um, outcome, right? So if you have a patient who's gonna get um, oral methotrexate weekly for rheumatoid arthritis, we don't measure methotrexate levels for that because we know that once a week, even in, you know, in leukemia patients, once a week, we don't have to measure levels because we anticipate that that dose correlates with a certain therapeutic outcome or right. Certain response. It's when you get to these really high doses, it's 12 grams per meter squared or in leukemia where it's five grams per meter squared, but we give it over a longer period that we want to check and see, okay, we know what this level is. And if we, if it stays there and it doesn't come down, we have to do something to treat you. So you don't die from toxicity, right? We want to make sure that the drug we're giving is not causing more harm than good. In most cases, those other drugs clear from the body in a way that's a little bit safer. So it's not really that same danger zone, if you will. You know, I saw someone comment in the chat about busulfan. Man, I'm telling you, that's a drug that's an enigma for another day. <laughs> that's a great example. Um, and we give that drug in a lot of different ways as well. But so you have to have something that you can actually measure in the blood, which is a challenge. And that that dose correlates with something that you understand. And in a lot of drugs, we don't, we don't have that. We also think about like something like cisplatin or uh, you know, which our doses are kind of a little bit smaller in range. We may give a low 20 milligram per meter squared up to a hundred, but we're not going from, you know, five per meter squared up to 12 grams per meter squared, five milligrams. So just very different drugs. There are other drugs. If you've been in the hospital for a minute or two, you might've gotten um, vancomycin levels. That's an antibiotic that we often monitor. Uh, voriconazole is an antifungal that we often monitor. Tacrolimus is an anti-rejection uh, medication. And all of those have that same like dose to toxicity threshold that's, that's something we have to monitor for. Got it. Great. Thanks. I know. I, I could talk about therapeutic drug monitoring all day, but that's because I'm a pharmacy nerd. So, um, but the reason in, with methotrexate, one of the reasons we like to monitor is because of methotrexate nephrotoxicity. So methotrexate has a whole lot of toxicities. You name an organ, it probably impacts, <laughs> it probably impacts it or could. The thing with methotrexate nephrotoxicity is unique because the drug itself, straight up methotrexate in your body, probably 80 to 90% renally cleared. Okay. But if you give um, alkaline, alkalinization, bicarb in the IV fluids, you're going to increase the renal, the kidney elimination to up to like 98, 99%. So that's why we give all those fluids and bicarb because we're taking something that's about, you know, 80, 90% cleared through the kidneys to up to closer to hundred percent. And the reason we want to push it is so we can give you a higher dose because in the case of methotrexate, that high dose is what helps with response. So making sure that you can clear the drug is important because if the drug lingers too long in the kidneys or isn't cleared, it can cause kidney damage. When you have a drug that's cleared by the kidneys and it also causes kidney damage, then if you can't get it out, it's just gonna, it's like a vicious cycle. It's, it's just getting worse and worse. Kidney injury, you know, decreases your methotrexate clearance, increases toxicity to, to other tissues which could impact the kidneys again. So it's sort of like this, you gotta get that drug out of your body. You can't just let it sit around. It's like, you know, it's like clogging the toilet. You gotta get it cleaned out or it's just gonna make things worse, right? And so that's why we have to give so much fluids and bicarb and make sure there's no interacting meds because we wanna give you the high dose that treats the tumor and then get it out as soon as, you know, we can. All right. so. The problem with nephrotoxicity or kidney toxicity is that we don't really truly do a, have a great way of understanding kidney damage. We, we do, but like 
we think about something, often we'll look at serum creatinine and that a, a bump or an increase in your serum creatinine could mean something else, right? It could mean that you have some interacting drug or some uh, muscle breakdown or, you know, some other reason. But we use that to help us think while you're clearing methotrexate, maybe the methotrexate caused a bump in the creatinine. But again, there could be a lot of reasons for a bump in the creatinine. And so it's not a very sensitive marker for understanding kidney damage, but that's really right now about the best that we have. There was, um, you know, there's recently been some work with using other markers. In some cases, some of you maybe have heard of cystatin C that's becoming uh, more and more popular. It's a different way of measuring kidney function. And so we're, we're constantly trying to figure out better ways to measure kidney function to help understand the impact of all drugs, not just methotrexate on kidney function. So methotrexate nephrotoxicity is important, not just because the drug can cause damage to the kidneys, but, but when the kidneys are damaged, it can cause the drug to accumulate, which can cause more side effects throughout the body. So again, vicious cycle. So I briefly touched on why do we only monitor methotrexate so closely? And we, we don't, we monitor, monitor the rest, but methotrexate gets special treatment, of course, because we have an understand, a better understanding of what the levels mean. Now, these are a couple other images from that same article in the oncologist. And some, you've probably seen this before, some of you, um, if you've ever learned anything about methotrexate. And this are, you know, it's a lot on one slide. I'm gonna start with the blue part on the left. So this is just a general schematic. It's probably similar to what your institution uses um, that shows you how we monitor methotrexate and at what point. So if you look kind of to the far right of the screen, you'll see methotrexate dose in this sort of teal blue dose, eight to 12 grams per meter squared over less than or equal to six hours. So this is typically where you would start in osteosarcoma. And then you would check, in some cases, a peak level at the end of the infusion, in some places, no. And then again, at 24 hours, if that level is over 50, that would be high, then you might, you know, this guideline recommends considering the use of glucarcidase. If you're under 50, you would typically just go ahead and say, I'm going to give straight up leucovorin, continue to IV fluids, continue monitoring, and then go on for there continuing again with every at hour, maybe 36, 42, but then definitely at 48, 72, et cetera, until your methotrexate is cleared. Um, that cl what cleared is, is varies a little bit from site to site, but in most cases, 0.1 is the threshold that we use. Now everybody's, you know, like, where does this 0.1 come from, right? And it's all this, like, again, 50, 60 years of measuring methotrexate levels and understanding that when you get to a level of 0.1, typically the drug methotrexate is at a point where it can be cleared from your body safely. Okay. And you don't need leucovorin to rescue your other healthy cells. So at that level of 0.1, in some case, some people will push that up to about 0 0.4, 0 0.5, but at that level of 0 0.1, 0.2 is usually routinely considered to be pretty safe at at again, at like hour 72. And the reason again is methotrexate, we're gonna give that big dose and then it's gonna clear, it's gonna, you're gonna have this big infusion and then it clears very slowly over time. Okay. Anything, I know this is a lot of like sciencey stuff. I don't know if there's anything specific. You've probably all seen this a million times, but any specific questions about methotrexate clearance? Yeah, uh, so a couple questions about leucovorin, and I, you might be getting into this, but um, so is the standard of care right now is that everyone gets that preemptively? So it's, you just start on leucovorin as soon as you com complete the infusion. Yeah, you should. So for the doses that are given in the treatment of ALL, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, and osteosarcoma, you need leucovorin. And again, that's, that's because the dose is so high. When you're giving methotrexate, Methotrexate doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm just looking for the cancer cells. If you're not a cancer cell, you can like, you know, put your hand down. It's looking for every cell in your body that has that carrier on the membrane. It'll take methotrexate in your body into the cell. 
And so even your healthy cells, and this is why we have mucositis, right? Because cells, every cell gets impacted. And some of those cells that are rapidly dividing, they get impacted a lot because they're spending a lot of time in what we call S phase. S phase, you know, is, is you know, synthesis of new DNA and whatnot. And so that's where methotrexate targets. So those cells in your body, like your GI tract that are dividing and, you know, new cells are forming rapidly, those get impacted harsh, I mean, big time. So that's why we give leucoborin because we know that your healthy cells are going to need to be rescued. And leucoborin is a folate. It's a, it's a reduced folate. It's that is um, helpful to kind of bypass where methotrexate has kind of done the damage in the cell. So methotrexate works on certain enzymes. Leucoborin comes in and says, you know what, I'm going to skip that step and move on in later in the process here and let this cell, you know, get back to normal. Sort of like a, you know, you know, I don't even know what to compare it to, but it's it's sort of like cheating, I guess, if you will, to help help save the good cells. Now, there's been some theoretical discussion that potentially leucovorin is not as, I mean, leucovorin may be more selective for healthy cells because certain cancer cells may not be able to take leucovorin into the cell as readily as healthy cells. So the the thought is you give methotrexate, let it do some damage and some efficacy for about 24 hours, and then start with leucoborin rescue immediately, usually around the 24 hour mark. So okay. everybody starts to get their healthy cells rescued at that point. And then is the decision point for whether or not the patient needs the um, glucarbidase, is that at that first um, level after the infusion, if that's over 50? Or are there other decision points along the way so that if you're not clearing still at, you know, hour 48 or whatever, um, yeah. or is it just that 50 at that first level? No, it's, it's every time you check it. So uh -huh. there's a couple of ways you can do it. One is, and I'll get to the mtxpk.org in a minute, but at 20, most of our clinical treatment protocols through cooperative groups will have uh, recommend, I might have it on the next slide. I'm not sure, but recommendations at hour 24, 48, 72, and so they say, you know, if your level is this at hour 48, then, you know, there's different ways that you can proceed with adjusting leucoborin, IV fluids, and so on. Some people that have been around for a minute or two would actually use this diagram on the left and check your level and then put an X I don't, on the, you know, mark the spot where you actually, you know, your level and the hour. So they say, okay, hour 42, I got a level of one and they put a little little dot right there and plot it, literally plot it on the nomogram and say, oh, this patient still needs 10 per meter squared every six hours. That's pretty old school. Some people still do it though. Um, and then, and, and that's, that's not a lot, you know, that's not very scientific, but that's still what a lot of people do because they're accustomed to using this particular nomogram. So that's kind of why, you know, mtxpk.org was created was to help sort of bring a little bit more comfort to the, what do I do with my patient after they got methotrexate, you know? Yeah. I just had a question about administering leucoforin uh, doses because every time the dots come in, it's been above 50. So then we get IV leucoforin the entire time. But is there any difference between administering that orally, like after you, you're not at like a toxic level anymore? That's a great, great question. So leucoforin Oral leucovorin has a, a, there's a certain dose at which it's, it doesn't get absorbed in your, in your GI tract very well. So if you give a dose of, you know, the pills come as like a 15 or a 25 milligram tablet. Sometimes some countries you can find them as a five milligram tablet. If you give more than 25 milligrams at, you know, at any time point, usually you don't get the full absorption of the drug. So if you were 2.8 meters squared, um, you're not obviously, but maybe, maybe a, a, a big teen boy who's 2.8 meters squared, if his dose was 10 megs per meter squared, that's 28 milligrams. So that's over that threshold. So at that point, the clinical team would have to decide, well, do we round it down to 25 or do we give it IV? And so, you know, a lot of times people will just do IV because it's easier. Or if your dose is something weird in between, like 16 milligrams, 17 milligrams, 
some people may opt to just give it IV. Some people like to give it IV because they want to make sure that it, it's not vomited and that it's absorbed. So there's a lot of different reasons for that, but you definitely, you know, oral leucovorin at 25 milligrams and below is absorbed. Above that, it's kind of questionable. Great question. I feel like I should have a talk with my doctors because I know it's below 25. Yeah, ask them. And it may be, you know, sometimes we have weird drug shortages and things like that. And so, you know, who knows what's happening, but, you know, definitely ask. And that's something, you know, always advocate for people like oral, you know, the less things you can get in your IV line, the better, right? You want to decrease your risk of infe infection at every time point. So if it's, if it's safe to give oral, I think that, you know, that's something to think about too. Okay. These are some of the goals. You've seen some of these, this, this is the table. I should have probably put that on the other, um, on the other slide there, but 24 hours, 48, 72. So these are kind of some of the typical thresholds that you'll see in some protocols. So you, again, I mentioned less than 0.1 at 72 hours. Um, I like this little cartoon here, this, this little dot, you know, it's just a little goofy thing. Um, but yeah, so we've already mentioned this a little bit. If you're above these thresholds, typically you would you would continue with some sort of rescue, IV fluids, et cetera. And I did see a great comment in the chat. We give IV until methotrexate is at a certain level and then switch to PO. And I, that's, that's a great point. Some people will want to wait until you get to hour 48 or 54 in, in you know, ALL or something like that, and then switch to PO. And that is another practice that institution to institution um, does vary. Some people even like to give the first couple of doses IV and then switch to PO. I even seen one practice where they give a bolus leucovorin that's higher than the rest of the doses. So, I mean, that's one of the things I mentioned we still don't I probably have 100% universal agreement on. Some people use a flat dose of 15 milligrams. Some people use a per meter squared dosing. So that's definitely something that varies a little bit. All right. So humans, we like to take control of the situation. We like to know exactly what to do at every point in time, right? We don't like uncertainty. So this, this tool, mtxpk.org that was created, um, was designed to help, and this is from the website, literally mtxpk.org. I've said it a bunch. You probably have it memorized now, but it's designed to help clinicians understand the pharmacokinetics of high-dose methotrexate, especially with regard to delayed clearance. So this is a tool that was built using patient data from a uh, group in Europe who is primarily, is primarily made up of kids with leukemia, ALL, currently, although we're looking to change that. And some really smart people, not me, but some really smart people that I work with, have created this. Um, the, the folks in Cincinnati, you may have heard Laura Ramsey and Zach Taylor, they've worked on this with a lot of folks across the world to create this really cool tool where you can enter your dose, look, I entered myself, fake, wish I was 17, your dose, you know, what your infusion time was, and you can actually enter some of your initial levels. Now, I didn't enter any, any levels here. You could enter, you know, okay, 1200 uh, micromolar at hour four, and it would plot your, your levels along this as well. But this is just something to kind of show you what the output is. So if you know your at level at four hours and 24 hours, and you wanna know, oh, I just wanna go home, right? Like I just want to go home. You put it in this tool and you might see that at hour 48, you're predicted to be at a certain level, say it's 0.9, okay? Or you might see that it's supposed to be at 1.5, wherever it is. And it doesn't mean that's where it's gonna be for a few reasons. One, your body could be different than everybody else's. Two, remember this data is based on leukemia patients or a little bit different than osteo patients. And so, you know, it may help inform you, but it may still, there may be, still be some things that we need to figure out. At least gives you some comfort or some understanding of kind of where you are, right? When, with expected clearance. And so, you know, if you're sitting around and you're, you know, panicking because your 24 hour level is high or you're worried because maybe it was too low. This is a great tool to kind of give you some understanding of what 
might happen in your, you know, the clearance of methotrexate. It's also really, again, it was designed for clinicians. So the idea was it's supposed to help the clinical team, instead of taking that old school nomogram and X marks the spot for where your level is, you can actually plug it into the tool and then it will show you, you know, with this, within this, this green zone, where might my patient end up over time? And then that can help them understand, do we need to order glue carpetase? How serious is this toxicity and so on? So I mentioned that, you know, it was originally based on patients with ALL, but um, working with some folks at Cincinnati and Children's Atlanta, and we're looking at adding in a lot more data to diversify, to add patients from throughout the United States who have, you know, different body weight, different ages, different ethnic race, racial backgrounds to try and understand like, what would it look like for an osteo patient, a lymphoma patient, leukemia patient here in the US based on our own data and how does that change the model? So, and then we also wanna study like, okay, it's great that we can predict how you might clear, but how else can we use this tool to, to help clinicians know, you know when to anticipate what other toxicities the patient may get, like mucositis, how severe will it be? Or you know, maybe in the case of leukemia patient, how, could we predict neurotoxicity and things like that? Okay, so I'm getting close to the end here. We all agree, I think now, that methotrexate is a key component in the treatment of osteosarcoma toxicities we know can be severe, but hopefully minimized with aggressive supportive care and even potentially the use of the tool. Now I added in here also that we do need some additional research on some of this variability. And we've done a lot with looking at different genomic risk factors, but we continue to need to do a little bit more research on that. And the end goal would really be to say, let's test up front. If you have this specific marker, you might need a different dose of methotrexate, leucoboran, bicarb, you name it. We do this in leukemia with a drug called mercaptopurine where we test for an enzyme called TPMT. And we say, you know, if the patient has this specific marker, we change their dose. And that would be sort of the holy grail with, with methotrexate is what are those genetic features that help us know how to tailor your dose a little bit better? So hopefully we can plug all these into that tool and really generate better, better knowledge and evidence around but the trexate to help, you know, anticipate and minimize some toxicities. So that's it. That's all I've got for today. And I'm happy to chat, um, answer any questions, et cetera. Thank you so much. I have newfound respect for methotrexate. Great. Uh, <laughs> who knew? Who knew it could be so interesting? Yeah. Um, a couple of questions um, for you, actually, about the um, carpetase. How is that administered and how quickly? Does that start to have some effect? Yeah. So we, you know, glucarbonase is a single dose, you know, a single IV dose. And basically it works pretty quickly. It is one of the drugs where I tell people, you know, they say, oh, but it's so expensive. I say, yeah, but you pay for what you get. This is a case. If you pay for what you get, I've seen that drug, you give it. Oh, you may have a leukemia patient with a 24 hour level of 160, which is high. And then, you know, a 48, you know, they continue to stay high, 36, 48, you give it and, and it, you know, you can see your kidney markers improve. You can see the level drop. The only kind of quirky thing is that, you know, measuring methotrexate levels after glucarpidase can be kind of challenging because they're not reliable. So when glucarpidase breaks down methotrexate into sort of byproducts, it starts to interfere with the way that we test for methotrexate in the body. And so those, after you give glucarpidase, the way that we test for methotrexate in the lab, like in the hospital, is not very reliable. You'd have to send it to a special lab. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the original studies, they did that. So we have the data showing that it works, but it's not as easy to do today in the way that we test methotrexate. Yeah, but it works. Tell you that. <laughs> And there's some interesting studies and people have done things like they've tried to, you know, say, oh, well, instead of a, you know, I think the dose is like 50 units per kilo. Well, say my patient needs three vials and I only have two. Can I just give two? And the drug is so effective that, you know, if you only have two and you can't get a third, just give the two, you know? 
So there's a lot of things that you can do to, to, to help mitigate severe toxicity. And it's given, is it given IV? Yes. Mm -hmm. Just aside from um, administering methotrexate, I was just wondering what's the importance of using high dose methotrexate post-surgery, say if you've like a localized case of osteosarcoma, as opposed to like a lower dose post-surgery? You know, I, I don't know that anyone's ever really studied that, you know, like high versus low in the post-surgical setting. Um, I mean, I could be wrong. It maybe has been studied, but I think in most cases, you know, the goal of giving adjuvant, so chemo after your surgery is really to help consolidate any sort of residual micrometastatic disease that may or may not be present, you know, that you want to just kind of make sure that, you know, it's gone, you know, definitely always better safe than sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, Dr. Bernhardt, are there other things that patients can do to help metabolize the methotrexate sooner? So I know you know, it was always like, like you said, it's like, you're so anxious to just get out of the hospital, like whatever we can do to like get yeah. this going. And so I remember the nurses would always encourage, you know, us to walk around. Um, they actually had like a treadmill in, yeah. um, in a little uh, a room in the corner. And so um, just other ways to just kind of help that process along. You know, that's a good question. I would say, I think one of the things that people don't necessarily appreciate is I don't know that you, there's many things you can do to really expedite, but there's some things you can do to help prevent slowing it down. Like, again, there was this really interesting study that was published that showed that patients that consume so cola, they called it cola, like Coke, Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, whatever, carbonated beverages had a longer clearance, slower clearance of, of methotrexate. And so there's some programs that strictly regulate how much Coke and Fanta and sodas that you're consuming because they, the thought was this carbonation, you know, that helped that decreased the clearance of methotrexate. So I think sometimes we, you know, <laughs> I'm terrible at this too. We eat and drink things and think nothing of it. Right. And so maybe sometimes, you know, watching to make sure that we don't have any dietary interactions, um, making sure, you know, even some complementary alternative herbal medications can interfere with your urine pH. And so just making sure that anything you're doing like that, you just disclose it, you know, and, and ensure that it's safe to do. Besides cola, what are some, some ones off the top of your head that people should avoid? Gosh. Um, no over-the-counter like pain medicines, you know, so no ibuprofen. I mean, I think most cancer patients know that. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Gosh, I can't think off the top of my head right now. Put you on the Thank spot. you so much for asking that question. I was just having um, carbonated seltzer water. Never mind having that. <laughs> it's not, a little bit may be fine, you know, but, you know, it's just one of those things where it's sort of like, Pure water is probably the best. <laughs> it's funny. I'd never heard about the cola thing either. Yeah. And it's, it's one study, but it was, you know, I felt like the results were pretty interesting. You know, I mean, we can probably overcome it with IV fluids and bicarb and things like that, but it is a, a small thing you could do right for a day or two. Mm -hmm. uh, making sure that nausea and vomiting is controlled. I should have mentioned that. Uncontrolled nausea and vomiting is one of the risk factors for delayed clearance. If you are vomiting, you tell the clinical team, period. As a pharmacist, when I was rounding on the med, on the wards, I always told people this. I was like, do not be ashamed to say, I need more meds for nausea and vomiting, period. You know, so that's definitely something people can do. Another good tip. Vicki, where, where are you in your, your infusion? Are you, is it completed or are you just clearing right now or? Uh, I'm just clearing. I'm about 48 hours out. I started with a level of like 54. So usually it's probably going to take a good like seven or 10 days. All right. Well, 
that was fantastic, Dr. Bernhardt. I'm sure we uh, we could go on chatting about this all day. You're so fun to talk to. Um, but we've come to the end of our hour. So thank you so much for um, spending the time with us today and especially for making it better for pediatric oncology patients everywhere. Um, more information about this episode and all osteobites can be found on YouTube, on our website, and on your favorite podcast platform. And if you register for today's session, you'll get an email with some more information from this episode. And next week, we're talking with Dr. Alex Wong and Dr. Kristen Van Heist from UH Hospitals Case Western. They're gonna be talking about a clinical trial development targeting tumor microenvironment in refractory and metastatic osteosarcoma. So thank you so much, Dr. Bernhardt and Vicki, and to our sponsor, BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals. And thank you everyone for joining us today on Osteobites. We hope to see you next week when we chat with Dr. Wong and Dr. Van Heist. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.